This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I am excited for this episode. We have brought back an old favorite, uh, a favorite for us, a favorite for the Equity Mates community with someone who... uh, is one of our favorite experts and maybe may have the honor of doing the only expert who does more media than us. <laughs> <laughs> every every Monday we roll into our the Osbiz studio to do our TV show and we see this expert's face on the screen. <laughs> I know, it's incredible. Don't know where she gets the time, but it is our pleasure to welcome back on the show for 2021, CIO of Berman Invest, Julia Lee. Julia, welcome. Thanks, Bryce. Thanks, Ren. It's always great to chat to you guys. I'm looking forward to it. It, uh, it was very clear through our 2021 listener survey that uh, they, our audience wanted more of you, Julia. So we've, we're going to be doing a, a mastermind episode today where we each uh, put forward a stock. It's not a buy, hold or sell recommendation. It is purely just to show how we're all thinking and researching stocks. And then we'll have a, a bit of a conversation around the three stocks that we pitch. Julia is an expert in Australian equities. So we've given her two American <laughs> stocks. <laughs> Um, Before we do, uh, we just want to give a quick shout out to the Australian Shareholders Association and the event that they are throwing uh, on the 31st of May to the 1st of June. Uh, It is uh, one of the investor events of the year where you will have the opportunity to hear directly from the chairman of BHP, Telstra, Woolworths, plus the CEOs of Fortescue Metals, Origin Energy, and a bunch of other top 100 CEOs from uh, both here and a couple from around the world. Uh, It is going to be live streamed to Western Australia, Queensland, as well as Victoria, and it is going to be live here in Sydney at the Hilton Hotel. 
We have 50 tickets available at a special discount for Equity Mates. So the first 10 from each of those states will get a special offer. And to do so, head to australianshareholders.com slash Equity Mates. That's australianshareholders.com slash Equity Mates um, to find out the discount there. Uh, the first 50 people to book will get a one-year free membership to the Australian Shareholders Association as well, which includes a bunch of awesome resources and uh, access to webinars and online courses. So don't miss out. Um, make sure you head over and, and check that out. Alrighty, so let's get stuck in. Who wants to go first? I think I usually go first, don't I? Well, do you want to uh, keep going first? Though? <laughs> Take proceedings. <laughs> <laughs> I'll kick things off, and then uh, and then let the two experts uh, continue. No, no, from no. There. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to be pitching uh, Home Depot. And uh, it's a you know loving re- the retail stocks that I do. Um, this one came across my desk and piqued my interest for a number of reasons. But we'll start off with a bit of a background. It is the largest home improvement retailer in the United States. If you think about what Bunnings does here in Australia, this is what Home Depot do over in the United States. Market cap of three hundred and fifty-seven billion. Yeah, it's had pretty uh, impressive results for 2020, record beating revenue of 132 billion, uh, 12.8 billion net revenue. And over the last 10 years, it's been growing revenue by about 5% year on year. So um, the most impressive part, however, is that over the last 15 years, it has generated uh, a stock return of 17% a year, which is outperforming the S&P 500 by about 7%. So it's actually, it's just been grinding and grinding and uh, it's, yeah, if you're a shareholder, you'd be pretty stoked. <laughs> Why I like it though is because of some of the tailwinds that it is currently I guess, benefiting from over in the United States where we're seeing a really red hot housing market. So we're seeing continued housing investment, including millennials entering their prime household, uh, I guess, formation or peak earnings. So Ren and I, 30, heading on 30, oh, looking, you're looking, heading to, on 30. <laughs> looking to buy houses. And we know that uh, Home Depot um, would really benefit from this this type of trend relatively low interest rates over in the United States and also um, government fiscal policy. So um, three three trends that are really helping to, uh, I guess, push customers and revenue to to Home Depot. And if we take a look at the, the business model and, and how that impacts it. So the, the great thing about Home Depot is that there are, there are two, two sides to their customer base. There's the do-it-yourself, which um, is benefiting from, as I said, COVID and everyone spending time looking around their home, wanting to do renovations, uh, wanting to fix up the bathroom, wanting to fix up the lounge room. Um, so they're really benefiting from that. The fiscal stimulus that the government is giving is also starting to, to trickle in and, and people are doing a lot more around the home. Um, also because of the red hot housing market, perhaps not being able to afford new housing and so doing a number of renovations on the homes themselves. The other part of their business is the service to small contractors, which they call pros. Now, uh, pros are essentially your, your handyman or, or builders out on work sites. They only make up 4% of their customer base, but generate 45% of their revenue. So that is 30% more revenue per store than their nearest competitor, which is Lowe's. Um, so if you think about how that creates a competitive advantage in terms of their ability to reinvest in the business and create growth, well above that of their competitors. Uh, it's a pretty attractive 
uh, I guess, consideration for investors. And what this mix in customers means is that it allows them to run like a dual business model on top of each other and leverage their cost structure. So pretty amazing. They've had an awesome e-commerce transition, which I'll touch on a bit. But the result of this is that they've been able to generate returns on invested capital of 45% for the last, say, 10 years, which um, is pretty amazing. Mm. Pretty amazing. Before I get into what this all means, do we have any initial questions from the panel? Yes. Yes. <laughs> One of the things um, I like to ask, especially with stocks that are doing well from the COVID-19 environment, whether it's through government stimulus or strong household balance sheets, which um, Home Depot is certainly um, benefiting from, is is this trend um, just a month off or is it going to be a multi-year trend that builds um, – throughout the years. So is the future growth already priced in or do you see better news coming out? And I guess it's an important one, I think, for Home Depot because I think it's due to come out with its quarterly earnings in a few weeks' time. Yeah, great question. Um, There's no doubt that the last year has been pretty phenomenal and uh, I think you would um, expect that comparative results for this year um, might not be as impressive as, as last, but the, the structural changes that we're seeing with, you know, millennials coming into the market um, and, you know, these, these low interest rates, they're not going anywhere. So um, Home Depot have been really good at, at, at compounding and growing year on year. Um, and I think a couple of reasons for that are having such a high return on invest, invested capital means that they can grow without needing to invest as much as their competitors do. And so over the last 10 years, they've been able to nearly double their revenue by only increasing the number of new stores by 2%. So yes, they're benefiting from some great tailwinds now and it might not be as as, as great as it was last year, but their ability to invest in existing stores, invest in tech and e-commerce and invest in their supply chain and generate incredibly good returns on those investments is going to allow them to continue to, I guess, grow and compound year on year. I think the other the other thing on that is, you know, Home Depot has about, what, 2,000, scratch over 2,000 locations in the US. If you compare it to some of the other big box retailers in other categories, uh, CVS, one of the biggest pharmacy chains in the US, has a scratch under 10,000 locations, uh, 9,900 locations. Walmart has a little bit over 11,000 locations. I know that, I know it's not an apples to apples comparison, but um, you know, if if Home Depot Home Depot has a fifth or a quarter of the number of locations as some of these other big box US retailers, you would expect there's some store network growth that they can achieve um, in the coming years as well. Mm. What are your thoughts, Julia? I like this one. Um, I, I have this view that um, big is only going to get bigger and we're, we're definitely seeing that at the moment. That goes for the big format hardware stores as well. Um, but, you know, Bryce, you touched on it. Millennials have, have been quite slow to get into the housing market. Um, and I think one of the things that COVID-19 has shown is that we're starting to see a reversal of that trend. And we are seeing more millennials being interested in the housing market um, because you don't have to live in capital cities anymore. The whole working from home trend means you can move to more regional areas. Um, So housing affordability comes into it as well. I think that's 
especially important for a company like Home Depot because the more home owners there are, the more potential customers there are as well. So I think that's a trend which really does support a multi-year growth story for Home Depot. I think the other thing is that um, US houses, they're, they're quite old. Um, so if you have a look at the average age of a house, I think it's just under 40 years. So there's plenty of renovations that can take place. And of course, you know, when house prices are rising, it's always a, a good time to remodel and hopefully add value to your home. Mm. Yeah, no doubt that that's what they're saying at the moment. I got a couple of questions for you. Yeah. First of all, is it depot or depot? <laughs> I would love to be able to answer that. Yeah. Um, yeah, home, yeah. Depends home. if you're Australian or American. Yeah. <laughs> depot. Let's just keep using the two interchangeably to really annoy listeners. <laughs> okay, depot it is. Second question. Um, I see that yesterday Citibank uh upgraded both Home Depot and Lowe's and put a buy price of Home Depot at $375 a share, which is about uh, 40 bucks higher than it is now. So my question is, uh, can I have your Citibank uh, analyst subscription? Mine? Yeah, yeah. I'm assuming that's where you got the idea from. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely did not get it from there. But uh, good to know that they have uh, put a price upgrade on it. I looked at the valuation on Simply Wall Street and they – you know, they pull a lot of uh, analyst estimates and they currently think it's about 20% overvalued. It has had a strong price jump over the last uh, month or two, jumping 30% since March. So uh, pretty strong growth there. But for me, this is a great long-term play over the next sort of five, 10 years. You can see really see that if they do continue to deliver the types of return on uh, investment that they have been. And to your point, Ren, if they do decide to, uh, I guess, increase the num- number of stores or continue to invest in technology in the supply chain, which they have. And there's no doubt that they will continue to dominate this space. The other point to note is that, you know, if you think about competitors, you would immediately go to that, the threat of Amazon. And I guess in a retail store like this, where over 50% of their online orders are picked in store, you can, you can sort of immediately rule out that sort of major threat. So um, then the, the number one retailer, or e-commerce retailer when it comes to hardware. So I just don't, I, I don't know what you think about this, Julia, but I just don't think about Home Depot or Bunnings in Australia as being that exposed to the Amazon threat. It feels like that's a category where you want to go and look and feel and talk to someone and get some advice and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I definitely think for the larger things like tiles or toilets, it's good to go have a look. Um, but I, I guess when it comes to uh, masterminding, you know, it wouldn't be a mastermind if we sort of made you sweat a bit, Bryce. <laughs> Can I ask another question? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, no, time's uh, up. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, you know, government stimulus and ultra low interest rates comes into um, the, the popularity of renovations and the strength of the housing market. What do you think will happen when the interest rates go up? Good question. Let me think about this. I don't think it's going to have a material impact, to be honest. I think that as I said, there's a, a large portion of their revenues that are driven by um, these suppliers of or, or contractors. Um, I don't think that'd be too too impacted, but it's a good question. Can I, can <laughs> I, can I jump? I'm sweating. <laughs> so I think if interest rates go up, uh, you know, house prices come down, uh, potentially. 
Um, that gives an incentive for some people to move if house prices cool off a little bit who have sort of missed uh, this, I guess, buying opportunity before this bull run. So potentially you see more movement, but potentially you also see downsizing as people realize that they're underwater in their mortgages and they have to sell. And then you might see people choosing to renovate smaller places rather than um, stay in bigger places where they're you know underwater in their mortgage as well. People be saving more. Yeah. What do you think, Julia? Let me let me ask you a question. So let's say we've just seen interest rates rising in the US for the first time in a number of years. Would you be jumping on to buy a home depot or would you be selling it? You would be well, I, I would be a long-term hold. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know the answer to this question. <laughs> I don't know the answer to the question, but um, I have a vivid imagination and I like to imagine different scenarios, um, which is part of, I guess, owning a stock. So I like to, I, I really like Home Depot, but then the other part of me is like, well, if I was to build a bear case for Home Depot, well, how would I build it? I think just going through the exercise helps me sort of see both sides so that when I do need to jump out of the stock that uh, I can I can see both the cases. Yeah, yeah. I, I also think, you know, the the contractor market is a really interesting one because it's it's so it's so valuable for Home Depot. Four percent of their customers almost half their revenue. Was that the number? Yeah. Yeah. It's like if someone can poach that part of their, that 4% of their customer base, they, their stores lose half their revenue. What what does that mean for a lot of stores? Uh, there's suddenly a whole bunch of stores that aren't profitable and then, you know, what happens then? So for me, like that is the segment that competitors will be targeting and that's the segment that you're going to have to watch. Mm. Well, uh, I'm conscious we still have two others to get through, so uh, I'll leave it there. Put Home Depot on the watch list. Nice one. Uh, Depot, Depot. Equity mates, before we hear Julia's stock pitch, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> Julie, do you want to kick it off? Oh, yes. So I chose this stock before the announcement today. <laughs> um, and it's QB Insurance. Um the stock's popped today. It's up about 4 almost 5%. <laughs> we, we should say, Julia, we're recording this on the on Wednesday the 5th of May for people playing along at home. Yes, and the reason why I, I like this stock is because when you look at insurance companies, and I guess this applies to the rest of the insurers in this space, so if you've missed out on QB Insurance, Insurance Australia Group is sort of in the same boat as well. Um, the risks are a little bit different, um, but... I think the insurance sector as a whole is looking pretty good. Um, I guess when we think about insurance companies, we think about um, global warming and the Mm. catastrophes that are happening because that's when you see insurance claims being in the news, whether there's flooding or hurricanes or something going wrong. Um, But when I like 
when I look at um, insurance companies, I, I basically just think of three different things. I, I like to have a view around um, premiums. I like to have a view around claims and then I like to have a view around the investment environment because all an insurance company does is it takes premiums and then it invests those premiums and then it pays out claims. So I think they're the three things to sort of have a view on to, to get a view on insurance companies. So I guess trying to apply this to QBE insurance, a QBE insurance is massive. It's one of the top 20 insurance companies globally. So um, people are familiar with QBE because it's headquartered in Australia, but actually it has staff in 27 countries around the world. Um, so I think it derives less than a quarter of its revenue through Australia, lots of its revenue through North America, Europe, as well as the Asia Pacific region. And it's in all sorts of things, um, you know, home and content insurance, motor insurance, um, insuring airports, um, aeroplanes, um, crop insurance, whatever you think of, it's probably involved in it. Um, the good news is that premiums are rising, so how much you pay for insurance is rising, um, and that's happening all around the globe, so that's a huge positive. And then if we have a look at the rates of insurance, um, that's quite strong as well. So people are signing up to insurance. And if you think about what's happening here in Australia, lots of people are buying houses, lots of people are buying cars. In fact, there's a wait list for cars at the moment. And all these things usually have to be insured. So insurers are in a good, good place in selling insurance at the moment. And then the flip side is that um, claims inflation is actually less than growth. So we're seeing premium growth of double digits, so 10% or more, but the underlying claims inflation is only 4%, which means margins are expanding. So the question is, are margins are going to just expand this year or is it going to continue to expand? And I think this is a multi-year trend that we're seeing here. The last uh, thing is the investment environment. And this is why I haven't liked QBE in the past. Um, we have seen COVID-19, I guess, offering a lot of volatility. Um, and I think it came out in around about April last year to say that it's reducing risk in its portfolio, which, um, you know, from an investment manager's point of view, you should, probably should have been increasing risk in terms of the portfolio then. Um, but, you know, most of its uh, portfolio is in uh, bonds over in the US and in Australia, and longer-term yields have certainly started to slowly move up. So I think it's in a good place in terms of its investment earnings as well. So the past 12 months haven't been great, but I think the next 12 months are looking better. So, Julia... Uh, you mentioned the climate change thing there, and I think whenever I think insurance, that's that's really the thing that um, stands out for me. You know, the uh, increased amount of uh, extreme weather events, um, and then just things like you know flooding and and all of that stuff um, is going to become more frequent. Is more frequent at the moment we're seeing, um, and you mentioned premiums rising, and you know that's partly as a result of these more and bigger payouts from these weather events. Um, for me, that that sort of always scares me off insurance because for me, I think if premiums rise too much as climate change gets worse, people will be priced out of the insurance market, which will mean the remaining people in the insurance market, their premiums will have to rise even more to accommodate the people that have fallen out of the market. Um, and all the while, extreme weather events are getting worse. Um, so for me, insurance has never been something that 
I've really thought a lot about in terms of investing. Why am I wrong? Uh, so, if you look at insurance, it's not about exposure to climate change. It's about pricing the risk of climate change correctly. So, insurers are in the game of pricing risk, uh, and they, sh- you know, that's their business. They they need to be able to do it well. And you're right. You know, if premiums get too expensive, then some people aren't going to be able to afford. Um, afford insurance and and I guess drop out of the market. But essentially the role of insurers is to price risk um, and that includes the risk of climate change. If they don't price it correctly, then their business, of course, is impacted negatively. But, you know, that's that's the core business. So it's not so much climate change that's the issue. It's adequately um, evaluating the risk of climate change and then being able to pass pass on those costs. But, you know, in many industries, you can't um, you can't operate your business without insurance. It's either a legal requirement or an equ- requirement of a license. Um, And I think one of the things that we've seen through COVID-19 is that because of the vast amount of government support, we're actually seeing a large number of businesses doing well. Um, And one of the risks I look at um, post-COVID-19 is once that government stimulus is withdrawn, do we see the so-called zombie companies which are which are relying on government support and surviving on government support start to disappear. And that, that's, the bigger, that's the bigger issue for me short term um, in terms of a risk to the business that we start to see businesses going bust at a higher rate and that impacts the number of people insured. Climate change, I think, will be, is more gradual and it will just creep up in terms of, of premiums. And at the moment, the insurers are able to um, pass on uh, premiums. But I think that is a long-term consideration. I think, um, interestingly, um, in New Zealand, there's a different type of insurance model where um, I think... Um, for homes, there's a national government policy, which covers, I think, something like the first 100,000 or something like that um, of damage. And the reason this, I guess I know about this is because when we saw the New Zealand earthquakes, the first thing I thought was, well, what's going to be the impact on the insurers? But actually, in New Zealand, there is some sort of government support when it comes to insurance as well. So... Um, look, I, I think it's a great question around climate change. I think it is an extra cost and, you know, insurance always is a cost, so it's a tax on a business. But I think it's it's an essential part of doing business for most industries. Mm. We're seeing the Australian government step more into the uh, insurance market as well. There's uh, They announced, I think yesterday or the day before, the reinsurance pool for uh, Northern Australia, um, to hopefully bring premiums down there and get more people insured. So I imagine things like that will help make premiums, you know, make the cost of insurance accessible and bring more customers in as well. Yeah, I think it's definitely a political hobble sometimes um, when it comes to insurance because um, some areas in Australia, it's very difficult to get insurance for. For example, if you're in a uh, flood-prone area, um, it's either super expensive or very difficult to even find insurance for. So it can be a a social um, issue and hence a political issue as well as an insurance issue. So I think the insurance 
business is is quite an interesting one. On the flip side, technology is also helping insurers as well on the claim side. It's quite interesting if it's forecast um, for hail in your area and you have motor insurance through a company. Um, insurance companies are SMSing their um the clients and customers to say, look, a house storm is forecast in your area. Make sure your car's undercover and giving advice before the event happens as well. Um, and that also impacts on uh, claims. So I think it's interesting that technology is also being used. So Julia, um, you spoke about the importance of thinking about the bear case when I did mine. So um, it'd be Good to get your view on, you know, despite all the positives that you've spoken about for QB over the next 12 months or so, what would you be looking for from a bear case point of view that may reconsider and perhaps answer the same question around if interest rates rise, what's the impact uh, for QB and well, their investors? In, interest rates going up would be good for a lot of <laughs> yeah, their investors. It would be good yeah. for QB insurance. <laughs> Hopefully insure, interest rates have bottomed, which means that QB share price has also bottomed out in terms of its investment earnings um, because as interest rates go up, it does earn more from the investment portfolio that it has. Um, and I guess uh, QB is a relevant one at the moment because we just saw the Berkshire Hathaway um, meeting and Berkshire at the heart of it is an investment insurance company as well. It collects premiums, invests it and it's got that insurance model. Um, so I guess the bear case is pretty simple. Those three factors um, going negative. So premium growth, so less people getting insured or um, the premiums coming down. Um, secondly, it would be around um, claims going up. So lots of people claiming. Um, more than expected um, and particularly above the premium growth rate, that would be a huge negative. And the third one is the investment earnings. If the outlook for its investment earnings was negative, at the moment, all three are looking positive overall. So QBE is looking positive, but if any of those factors turn negative, that would be the bear case. Nice. So Julia, I've got one more question. Maybe I'm just delaying the inevitable where I have to present a stock. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you mentioned um, a number of other insurers there, you know, um, IAG is a big one. There's a number of others in Australia. Um, why do you like QBE over the likes of IAG or Suncorp and, and the other insurers out there? Uh, price comes into it. <laughs> so it has been looking relatively cheap. So I've been watching this one since it hit $9, which was only last week, I think. And now it's at almost $10.50. So it's been a pretty fast rise for QB insurance. So I guess the market has noticed that as well. So the value does come into the equation. Insurance Australia Group, um, I like as well. Um, but it, it did get tied up a little bit in green seal. Now, it managed to sell its exposures before the implosion of green seal, but I'm just a little bit wary that there could be court cases or it could get sued in relation to green seal. So just watching that as an extra potential risk. I do like some called Metway, um, and it's got the addition of the bank as well. And we know that the banking sector is doing well because of the strong housing market. And some called Metway, which traditionally has strong roots in Queen. Queensland, we know that the Queensland market is doing extremely well from strong migration from um, Sydney and Melbourne. So, Ren, before we move on to yours, uh, final pitch of this mastermind, we'll just take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. All right, Ren, it is your turn. Uh, you want to take it away? Sure, sure. So, um, look, everything we talk about on uh, this mastermind episode isn't investment advice, and uh, that is 
no more true here. This is just one to add to the watch list, but more importantly, just as a company that I'm really fascinated by. I kind of love it, uh, like what they've done. Um, and I just want to talk about it really. So, um, um, the company I'm talking about today is Twilio. For those who are unfamiliar, it's traded on the New York Stock Exchange stock ticker TWLO. So, Bryce and Julia, to kick it off, I got a question for you. Have you ever received a message from Uber that your ride has arrived? Have you ever received a text from an airline saying that your flight is delayed? Have you ever received a text from a doctor or a dentist reminding you of an appointment? Have you ever had a delivery notification text from DHL or Australia Post? Or have you ever gone into the Uber app and called your driver when you're trying to find out where they are? Yes. All of the above. (laughs) (laughs) Well, both of you, and I'm pretty confident that most smartphone users around the world have Twilio to thank for that. So Twilio enables developers to access the world's communication infrastructure through APIs. I'll unpack what that is. Um, They were first. These days, they're definitely not the only, and we'll get to that. Um, But really, if you think about the world before Twilio and then the world after, the world before Twilio, if you wanted to... uh, integrate your platform or your software or your app with, you know, existing telecommunications infrastructure. You have to hire a team of engineers, um, had to work for months, potentially years, depending on how big you were going to, to make connections with every different telco. You know, in Australia, you'd have to build integrations into Telstra and then to Vodafone, then to Optus. If you were overseas, you would then have to integrate with all the uh, other telcos around the world, all different, all bespoke in their own ways, expensive, time-consuming, but but most importantly, it was a real barrier to innovation. If you were a startup or a small business unit or a developer at a company and you had an idea, it was difficult to just test and learn that idea because you know there was such a barrier to integrate whatever you were doing with existing uh, telecommunications infrastructure. Along comes Jeff Lawson, uh, developer, former contractor at Amazon Web Services, founds Twilio. And um, basically what he and his team set out to do is to integrate Twilio with all of this communications infrastructure around the world and then offer it as an API to developers. And so with nothing more than a credit card, uh, you sign up, get the Twilio API, insert the code into whatever you're developing, and then you can go and communicate with your customers. You can send text messages, have in-app phone calls. Uh, Over time, they've developed a whole bunch of other things, but that essentially is the business. Um, They allow developers to access the world's telecommunications infrastructure. These days, Twilio is big, um, but it's still little known. So it's got over 200,000 customers, I think 208,000 customers at last count. And within that customer base, there's 10 million developers that use Twilio. It's estimated that there are 30 million developers around the world. So about one in three developers globally use Twilio, which is pretty impressive. I'm going to stop there. I've got some numbers, talk about valuation, uh, but any questions about the business or anything at this point? 
I have a question. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess um, I love great stories and Twilio is a fantastic story, a story of our times and obviously it's growing very strongly. I mean, having a look at its last quarterly update, revenue growth of 65% year on year, but it was still making a loss from its operations of $185 million. And we know that given that long-term bond yields have started to move up, that companies that are, uh, are relying on future cash flow have really been impacted um, quite hard in 2021. So have we seen, seen an impact on Twilio's share price? Um, and does that form a part of your view? You think that it's looking cheap right now because of what's happening externally outside of the company? You've uh, you've hit a couple of nails on the head, Julia, and you've provided me a great segue into talking about the numbers. So I'm going to answer your question in a roundabout way um, and just talk to some of the numbers to give everyone some context on what you're talking about there. So Twilio is not small. It's got a $58 billion market cap, but you're right, Julia, it's down. So it's down about 15% in the last week alone. Um, down about 23% from its 2021 high, but um, it has run incredibly hard. It's run incredibly hard since the end of COVID or since the market lows of COVID, um, up a bit over 300% from March 2020. Um, And since listing in 2016, the stock price is up over uh, 1,200%, just under an average of 70% average annual growth rate. So the stock has run incredibly hard. It's grown its top line revenue incredibly strongly. So uh, 2020, it did 1.7 billion in revenue. Five years ago, it was doing 166 million in revenue. So it's grown that at about a 60% compound annual growth rate. Uh, 2021, it's forecast to do $2.4 billion in revenue. So uh, another 40% up, but you're right. Hasn't made a profit isn't even close to making a profit. (laughs) Classic tech. And I think, you know, a lot of tech is unprofitable and, you know, they'll eventually grow into their valuations, at least so the theory goes. Twilio has low margins and is in an industry that is notorious for low margins that never expand, which is telecommunications. So that is definitely a red flag. And, you know, that's why at the start I said, this is not so much a, a pitch, more as just a business story and a company that I find really compelling and really interesting. Um, Twilio, if you asked Twilio, if you asked uh, Jeff Lawson, the CEO, he would say, we've built a core customer base with a low margin product that is that our competitors don't really want to try and replicate, or if they do, they're not doing it as well. Um, and once we own the customer, we're now bolting on a whole bunch of more higher margin products to uh, that to, to, I guess, convert the, the massive customer base into prof- profitable customers over time. And, you know, they are executing that strategy in somewhat, uh, somewhat. But, but to give you an idea of just how low margin this is, um, Twilio is a usage-based business. They charge... Um, uh, 75% of their revenue is uh, based on like a per call or per message communication. Uh, they charge 0.7 of a cent per text message. Um, so not, not a lot of margin there, not a lot of money there but <laughs> per text message. The, the really interesting thing, some of their customer metrics are really strong. So we talk about same store sales with um, 
retail businesses. If you talk about same customer sales with Twilio, uh, every year the average customer is using th- is 30 to 40% more or paying 30 to 40% more. So the customers that love the product are using more of it. Um, also, in terms of customer churn, it's less than 5% by dollar value, not by customer count, but like it shows that the big customers aren't going anywhere. So customers love it. Developers love it, especially. They, they've used a similar sales tactic to Slack. You know how traditionally tech was sold top down and you convince the CIO to buy, you know, Microsoft software for the business or IBM software for the business or IBM hardware for the business. Um, Slack and Twilio have gone bottom up and they've gone to the developers and got them to start using it and it's gone up through the companies that way based on, I guess, the quality of the product. But yeah, that that's all a roundabout way of saying I would be incredibly concerned about valuation and how they reach profitability and when they reach profitability. I had a look at Simply Wall Street. They have them at 733% overvalued. So Jeez. there's... um. They're, they're definitely expensive. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that is the real question. Like, can they ever find a way to improve their margins or convert customers to higher margin products? Because mm. Julia, to, to answer your question in that very roundabout way, their customers love it. They've solved a big problem, but in terms of an investment, I think it's a fair way off. Um, something that I would put money in today. Where do they sit with uh, within the competitive landscape on all of this? Who, like, can they not raise prices um, because it's so competitive? Or yeah, so there there are competitors. Um, they they obviously you know first move a big market share, but there are competitors that are trying to do something similar. Um, so there are other listed companies. Vonage, a company I hadn't heard of, have a similar product called Nexmo. Um, that company stickers VG. There's a number of other competitors, both US, Europe. Um, but the two most, uh, I guess, top of the list competitors, the ones that you've got to pay attention to, Amazon have a co- rival product, Amazon Connect. Microsoft have a rival product, Azure Communications Services. Um, and so they're the big threats. Interestingly enough, though, Amazon Connect actually runs off Twilio, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what the the mechanics of that are. If it's just Twilio white labeled, or it uses some of Twilio's software and they pay for that, and then they do the rest themselves. But you know, Amazon and Microsoft have the balance sheet and the profitable business centers to run loss leaders for a long time. Um, and so, th- to answer the question, why can't they just raise their prices? That would be a key reason. Yeah, fair. I like your analysis. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Julia. I mean, this is a company. So I, I love. You know, we all talk about these big tech companies, and rightfully so. They've been incredible. They are incredible businesses, and have been incredible investments. But for me, there's just so many fascinating. I guess second tier tech companies that don't get a lot of uh, conversation, but are really interesting businesses and. and you know, a lot of them are overvalued at the moment, but they're they're just fascinating stories. Twilio is is one, another one that doesn't get a lot of airtime, but has been an incredible investment. Etsy um, just killed it over time. So yeah, these these are the stories that I love. What would happen if interest rates go up? Great question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I think Twilio's share price would go down yeah. a lot. Um, well, maybe not a lot, but Twilio would suffer as a lot of these high growth tech stocks would be, uh, would do. In terms of their business operations, I don't think they're overly exposed to inf- interest rates. Like you could make some second order case that highly indebted businesses uh, or zombie companies that use Twilio services would start to go out of business because their debt gets more expensive and they can't cover interest payments and that might diminish Twilio's customer base. But really, Twilio's biggest customers are big companies. Um, and so I think in terms of like meaningful impacts, I, I couldn't really think of a lot. But Julia, if you can think of something, I'm more than open to hearing it. I like the business. It's For me, it's just a question of when to buy the business. But, um, you know, I think a company like this is here to stay and its services are definitely needed. And I guess it's that old Amazon model. Once you have all the customers, you can raise your prices and then see huge growth in terms of profitability. Mm. And uh, they are trying to do that with some of their other products. They've got... Um, like Twilio Flex, which is like a call center product. They acquired uh, SendGrid, which uh, does a- adds emails to their suite of products. They got another product segment that is like an upsell that helps businesses manage uh, incoming communications and outgoing communications and like identify high value customers and all that stuff. And yeah, they, they you know, they talk about ways that they can have like different premium offerings and stuff like that. So, you know, they're obviously thinking about it, but yeah, I agree that you'd want to see some of that in the numbers before you, you pull the trigger. Nice one. Well, three great stock pitches, if I may say so myself. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Good to be back on deck with mastermind with you, Julia. Uh, I hope that uh, you, you guys out there listening were able to take something valuable from from the last uh, 45 minutes or so and get a bit of an insight into how we're thinking about our stocks and, and doing a bit of research. So um, we will endeavour to try and bring some Australian companies next time we get back on no, with Julia. Let's, but, co- uh, let's commit to doing an Australian company next time. Australian company. <laughs> um, but uh, look, we will leave it there. Julia, again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, glad to have you back and, and we look forward to continuing. Great to chat to you guys. Thanks, Julia. Thanks. Equitymates Investing Podcast is a product of Equitymates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.